Welcome to Coach House Talks. So, today we will be looking at the theme of cultivating gratitude and choosing joy in every circumstance. We're moving on from the topic of the knowledge of God and the revelation of Scripture. We now move to the topic of conquering our modern mindsets, where we take the time to highlight some attitudes and thought patterns we have been steeped in while reflecting in Scripture. Gratitude and joy are connected to the more practical elements of Christian life, especially in the context of worship and prayer. I want to share a little about my own reading interests. Some of us here like reading different kinds of literature. Maybe some like reading historical fiction, travel literature, or science fiction. There are also genres like drama, poetry, autobiographies. Maybe you like reading someone's autobiography, who knows? In my own time, I like to sit down and read progression fantasy stories. It's a certain subgenre where the main character gradually develops over time. In a progression fantasy story, the main character usually starts at the bottom of the totem pole and encounters something that opens up the path for the character to become better. I've read stories where maybe you have a peasant who finds the tattered remains of an old book or a disgraced servant stumbling into a mysterious cave containing the legacy of an expert in a certain field. The charm of these progression fantasy stories is that the change is never overnight. A bad progression fantasy novel would be one where the main character at the end of the novel says something like, the power was in me all along. A bad progression fantasy novel would be one where their development was effortless and sudden, as simple as eating or sleeping. A progression fantasy highlights that the character starts with little to nothing in a wretched state compared to what they eventually grow into. The magical items or encounters they have in the beginning of the novel are life-changing opportunities and open the door to an incredible adventure ahead. But the main characters are still not complete in the beginning. Even if the characters find these amazing items, they do not transform into supreme experts the moment they pick them up. Instead, the characters investigate and try to understand what these items are. Analyzing these items can take a good quarter of the whole story, and then they decipher a portion of the incredible item, and they begin to train. They cultivate themselves. When we talk about cultivation, we're not talking about farming, where you take up a shovel and uh, start digging the ground to cultivate vegetables. We're not talking about that. We're talking about a philosophy where you develop your mind and body 
throughout your entire life. And this is not a new idea at all. Self-cultivation philosophies have been around since ancient times, like classical Greek Stoicism, where it's all about practicing virtue to lead a happy life, or Chinese Taoism, where you commit to a regular tempering of the heart and mind to live in harmony with the natural order. Of course, Christianity does not claim that you can self-cultivate yourself to salvation. Salvation is bought by the blood of Christ and given to believers of the good news, and it's never earned. We are made already complete in Christ. The work of salvation is done as a status and cannot be improved by our efforts. Just as someone who is married cannot become even more married. So what is it that we need to do? Why did I just ramble on for five minutes about cultivation and self-progression fantasy? 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. You see, in our story of progression, salvation is given in fullness as the life-changing opportunity we encounter. But the Christian life is also about examining ourselves and participating in our efforts to cast off evil and imitate Christ. This is the step-by-step progression, the cultivation that needs to happen in a Christian life. In our interactions with the local community today, in our neighborhood, we have it drilled into our bones that we need to express gratitude, the quality of being thankful to our fellow man. Gratitude can be expressed in many different ways. It can range from a simple thank you to someone providing regular service to a sharp, heartfelt moment of tears. Gratitude affirms a bond between the giver and receiver. For a Christian, gratitude is central and everlasting to the faith. At the core of Christianity, we recognize what Jesus has done for us. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5 says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Followers of Christ follow 
because they recognize the wretchedness of humanity and our total spiritual bankruptcy. A Christian is saved by faith, and at the most basic level of identity, a Christian acknowledges Jesus is Lord and believes in the resurrection, accepting his gift of salvation. Gratitude is our human response to divine grace. Beginning at salvation and opens up our understanding of what it means to be a human in a right relationship with God. We never had this understanding, and we never could have had this understanding without this life-changing opportunity. As we earnestly come before God and act to understand him more, Christians grow in the knowledge of God. We gain confidence in his identity. We become corrected in our fear and honor of him. Our diligent study of God leads to a greater appreciation. Just as a Christian cannot be sitting around idly, content in the small level of knowledge they have of God, a Christian cannot settle for an unchanging quality of gratitude towards God. Gratitude is to be cultivated and developed. Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 to 7 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul wrote Philippians as a letter to the Christians of Philippi when under house arrest and waiting for his upcoming sentence in Rome. Paul's joy, despite his circumstances, is not from a positive mental attitude. I know this is something that a lot of people put forth. Unfortunately, it doesn't work for Paul in this case. Paul's joy is found in the confidence that God is in control. We pray and ask in gratitude, recognizing who God is and reflecting on how we need to act rightly in our relationship with him. Philippians encourages us to bring our worries and requests to God. We are not putting our situations out of our minds, but meaningfully bringing them before God, confident in the knowledge of who he is and how he will respond. When we are grateful despite our circumstances, acknowledging God's position in our hearts through prayer and practice, the peace of God will guard our hearts and minds. Worship is an offering 
of honor and adoration of God. Worship does not necessarily have to be outwardly sentimental, despite what a lot of people believe and what a lot of churches push for. And worship does not have to be plainly rational either. However, just striking a balance of not being overly emotional or rational is not the solution. We're not here to find a balance in our worship. Worship comes with an ever-deepening understanding of our God. In a moment of worship, we recognize God's nature, who he is, and what he has done. This understanding lets us come before God in thanksgiving. Emotions come and go. The circumstances of our lives may change based off of sudden difficulties or joys. Gratitude to God cannot be a simple emotion when you feel like it. Now, today, we have many in the church who do not connect with a style of music, the act of singing, or maybe even the liturgy itself, where you disagree on how this church has arranged its services. Ritual worship can be difficult for many to be emotionally connected. Maybe some want to say, if I need to worship God, I'd rather do it in my best state. I tell you today that God is not here for your emotional convenience. He is not here to accept your praises just because you feel like it's just about the time you want to compliment God for doing a good job. Jesus once gave the parable of the two sons before the elders and religious leaders in the temple courts. Let's read Matthew chapter 21, verses 28 to 32. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But he later changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. The first son did not want to bend to the father's will. Then he changed his mind. Even though his initial attitude and his words were wrong, he did what was right. The second son said the right words with 
respect. But he did not do what was needed to be done. Let's forget about the religious leaders in the passage. I know it's very boring to be laughing at Pharisees. Whoever thinks of submitting to God and talks about submitting to God, but does not, is the second son. Do not be self-righteous and think that this only applies to those who do not believe. The parable is simple. Are you obeying the will of the Father? Worship is an intelligent decision that brings out your cultivation of character. It doesn't even matter if you're naturally inclined or genetically predisposed to be overwhelmingly emotional or rational. It doesn't matter. Maybe you're on medication right now that dulls your mind and emotions. Or, on the other side, maybe you have crying fits every day whenever you read Chicken Soup for the Soul. It doesn't matter. Consider even your current inclination to sin. None are righteous before God, being natural enemies of God's holy nature. By the gift of Jesus, we recognize him as the Christ and are saved, freeing us from being bound to sin. But do not think that you are naturally and self-sufficiently full of goodness and inclination to do holy actions. Let's reflect on Romans chapter 7, verses 22 to 25. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death. Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. I have mentioned this several times in the past, but as a reminder, it's important to remember what we mean when we talk about holiness and sin. These are words that are fundamental to our scripture and understanding. Holiness is God's nature and image in full. God intends for us to live holy lives. Holiness is an element that only comes through the nature of God. Sin, then, is a state that lacks the nature of God. It's a challenge to the sovereignty of God. God is inherently holy. It is his nature. Humans are not inherently holy. A Christian's actions after accepting the salvation of God are not inherently holy. Christians only become holy in their relationship with Jesus. 
practical holiness for Christians is an active pursuit. Deliberate, constant cultivation of their deepening personal knowledge of God. When I was very young, I was sent away to study overseas. My father and mother would phone me every week. At the end of every call, we would pray together. And before we started praying, my father would always ask me what I was thankful to God for. I personally don't like diary keeping, so I only write on occasion. When I was 16, I was seriously reflecting on a certain hypothetical situation in my life, so I wrote a few entries in my diary. When I was 20, I added a few more, en um, a few more entries from my studies, and then I summarized something, this hypothetical situation, that if I ever did fall away from the Christian faith, it would be because I was an ungrateful fool. Let me explain. Jesus in John chapter 17, verse 3, prays before his disciples on the night that he was betrayed. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I've already reminded everyone that sin is the absence of holiness. Human lives are originally intended to be holy. Therefore, sin, sin is not the reduction of the quality of a holy life, but sin is the reduction of life. Knowing God is not a small benefit to be included in eternal life. Knowing God is everything. It is what eternal life is all about. Knowing God is the greatest treasure in the universe. So, if I were to ever fall away from the Christian faith, it would mean that I had thrown away this treasure. Eternal life, knowledge of God, my soul's purpose. If I know even a little of these now and declared it all as garbage, then I would be an ungrateful fool. This conscious rejection, this decisive ingratitude is what we call the unforgivable sin. It's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, as many texts would like to refer. A shallow understanding of prayer creates a practical struggle in our lives. God already knows our thoughts. So why should we repeat the words in our heads to God when he already can read our minds? We're not here to be self-deceptive. If you have struggles, you should meet these struggles head on. 
Let's read James chapter 7, verse 2 to 3. You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. James is writing to fellow believers. Let me be clear on one point. Prayer is not about providing God with information. He already knows your thoughts. At the same time, prayer is not about spitting out the words in your head so that God will do what you want, like a dog who waited for the treat to come out. And this is a bit harsh, but I do need to say this. Prayer is not about persuading God to work according to our will. Even if you were very rationally listing out legitimate needs, or if you were begging God in the most deepest and genuine moments of emotional vulnerability. It's not about our will or persuading God at all. Even if you scream, kick, and cry. Prayer is about aligning our will with his will and expressing recognition of his sovereignty over your current situation. God knows what you wish to say. You know, he knows. You say your prayer because you choose at this moment to speak to him as a person, to be transparent, to be soulfully genuine, honoring who he is, what he has done, and what he can do. We give requests because we do have legitimate needs as humans, and we speak to God with thanksgiving because we have the privilege of submitting these requests and their outcomes under his will and not ours. In this way, there is no self-deception. In this way, there is no magic trick to a celestial genie. Only genuine gratitude to the Almighty. Now, of course, there's also a relational aspect to our prayers. A family member might know that you love them. But if you choose not to affirm, verbally or otherwise, that you do love them, simply because you know that they know, and there are problems. There are problems with your familial relationships, whether due to your culture or yourself. We're not here to pander to societal stereotypes of what a family should be. At least for relationships, we're here to read out of the good book and get better at what we lack. 
Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 to 11 says, And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. We speak to God to express that we love him and want to learn to love him more beyond just the mind and emotions. We want to communicate with God knowledgeably, soulfully. Your worship of God is improved by your genuine growing gratitude with a greater understanding of his forgiveness of your sins and his provision and guidance in your life. As you cultivate gratitude and pray with thanksgiving, we also find that we have the option to react deliberately in joy in all circumstances. And I have to be very careful here because a lot of people take this the wrong way. Paul, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 to 18 says, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. The peace of God... And our reason for rejoicing are not based on your circumstances. Whether you are in good or bad circumstances, a Christian should have reason to truly rejoice always. We learn to give with a grateful heart, not because of our circumstances, but because in all circumstances, it is God's will that we can rejoice. It's God's will and not yours that we can rejoice. Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 16 to 18 says, I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord." I will be joyful in God my Savior. Habakkuk was a prophet who announced the judgment of God during a time when the nation of Judah was steeped in sin. The Babylonian army would invade and the nation would be destroyed. When the world around him becomes desolate, Habakkuk resolves to rejoice 
in God. In both ancient and modern times, our faith is often confronted with the problem of how how are we going to live through our suffering? When desolation hits, you may lose your possessions, you may lose your family members, your livelihood, or the place you call home. When desolation hits, you can't just do a mental trick and shut out the pain or the reality of your loss right under your nose. That bank account will be still return a lot of negative numbers. This is reality. And, you know, unlike some religions, Christianity is very clear that there is genuine evil in this world that opposes God. Habakkuk, more than two and a half thousand years ago, chose to rejoice because he had the God of his salvation. He only had God left. And that was enough reason to rejoice in his desolation. He's not sitting in some high tower writing weepy words. Everything is gone, and he chose to rejoice. He understood God is enough. And how many of us do think like that? It's something we need to cultivate. James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. Perseverance is used in the NIV translation. It can also be read as patience or endurance in other translations. The original Greek word is hupomone, meaning a sense of active endurance. Remaining under something instead of passive waiting. There's a very specific attitude being implied here. Imagine a certain trouble in your life. I'm sure we all can do that. Imagine it as a heavy weight bearing down upon you. And what is your current response? Some scream and shout, crying for this weight to be removed. It's too heavy. It's too painful. I'm going to be crushed. It's the world against me. Some desperately crawl around, doing anything to escape under the weight. Just let it leave me. I don't want this. If difficulties are received in unbelief, frustration, fear, or anger, trials will just add to the suffering that you're already under. If your mindset is already in a place where you don't want anything else added to your plate, then it's only inevitable that you will experience a great bitterness once trials are heaped upon you. It's only natural. James writes to us, saying that there should be another type. 
something that is not natural for humanity to experience. This type, instead, decides to shoulder the heavy weight. Escaping is no longer even in the mind. When the weight comes upon you, you do not think of escaping. Receive the trial in faith, approaching the trial with great joy. There are no linguistic tricks this time. Feel free to study the Greek lexicon. Take the trial you're experiencing as a joy you're experiencing. For in the process of going through such a difficult time, you are becoming perfected. For these trials can prove the work of God within us as we grow in spiritual maturity. If you respond correctly in joyful anticipation of your spiritual maturation, God will help you cultivate perseverance in your life. That's not to say that you aren't feeling bad. A Christian can suffer in trials of many kinds. But this joy is more than your momentary emotion. It is a soulful response to cultivation of your character. A Christian is to actively cultivate gratitude in prayer. Gratitude is something we build upon a foundation something we can and should get better at. Some, some may say it's impossible to be an ungrateful Christian. Don't be flippant. Don't throw out irresponsible remarks. You can certainly die less grateful than you could have been. You should have been. I like reading progression fantasy stories. That's my thing. Feel free to take it as a personal interest of mine. But you know, the real fiction, the real delusion here, in reality, is thinking that you can achieve the pinnacle of gratitude whenever and however you connect with God. No. Gratitude is constant cultivation, building upon the foundation that God has put out for you. The salvation of your soul may be instant, but how can you grow as a Christian in spiritual maturity when you don't put in the work? Gratitude deepens worship and opens the door to responding to trials in life with true joy. As we grow to understand more of God's character, and as we continue to examine ourselves, our human weaknesses become ever more apparent as we grow in our personal knowledge of Christ and what he has done. Gratitude towards God is not inherent in our modern day-to-day -day modern mindset. To Christians, gratitude should never be a polite thank you. Gratitude acknowledges God and his work, a developing step 
towards conquering our modern mindsets and orientating ourselves towards loving God with all our heart, soul, and mind. Amen. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and at www.coachhousechurch.org.